morning, everybody. Kind of straighten this thing out here a little bit. Um, we're so glad you're all here on Super Bowl Sunday, but I may mean, know oh, it's a Super Sunday because Jesus is here, right? <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Let's clear my throat. <clears> throat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's all swallow now and we'll all, we'll all be fine. All right. We're going to be turning to Colossians chapter 2 in just a moment, but let me make a couple announcements. First of all, Friday night, 7 p.m. right here, we're having a gathering with all, um, let's say, young adults from 18 to 35 or so with all the other churches on the harbor. So show up for that. It'll be good. And then also, today is Donut Sunday. Don't want to forget right after service. And then we have Clint Gresham with us. That will be signing autographs out there uh, after service. And you'll get to know Clint here in just a moment. But let me just read to you a couple scriptures from uh, Colossians chapter 3. And today we want to talk about the heart of a champion. And we're talking about a champion for God. So Colossians 3 says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know what you will receive, you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. All right, so we'll stop there. But the point is this. Christians who are champions, who have a champion's heart, what they do is they do it for God, not for themselves, and not for the accolades of others. That's what we do. And the Bible is full of champions all the way through from beginning to end. And uh, they had the ability to overcome odds that were against them in many different ways. They defied labels that were put on them, such as a shepherd boy becoming a king, a teenage girl becoming a queen. And uh, they not only became those people, they subdued nations, and subdued uh, the enemies of God. So ordinary people that followed Jesus became world changers. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to say that God took a regular, everyday schoolboy and turned him into a Super Bowl champion. So would you give a big hand to Clint Gresham as he comes up this morning? What's up, everybody? The first thing Clint's it's good do to be back. is he's going to throw out some footballs for free coffees. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. Someone's glad they caught that. <laughs> and over there. Oh, almost hit the baby. Sorry. <laughs> Is there one more in there? No, I think that's, that's it. it. Okay, now, I, I, who here has teenage boys in your family? Teenage, pick one and throw it to them. This is an autographed football by Clint. Okay, you were the first one I saw, so. I still got it. Still got it. You still have it. You're only 36. Give yourself time. I'm young. Okay, as you can see, I'm sitting a little lower than Clint. I, I picked a smaller stool so I would not be 
taller than him like I normally am. <laughs> Clint is 6'3", 200 and some pounds. Something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 5'9", and 200 and some pounds. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, with that in mind, uh, I want to give you some uh, intangibles or attributes of champions, and then we're going to talk to Clint about him and where he's at in his life. So uh, intangibles are things that you just really need to have as a, as a champion, especially for God. And number one is you need passion. Number two, you need a focus so that you're not distracted. Number three, you need self-motivation. And then number four, you need a confidence. And we'll talk about what that kind of means. So coming back to you uh, as a champion, and uh, you started out in grade school and all that good stuff and became this great, amazing, it's so hard for me to say, <laughs> Super Bowl long snapper. <laughs> no, it's, like, was, see, it's like a got, jumbo shrimp. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. I'm just saying you, a you, great you don't long grow snapper. up going, gee, I want to be a Super Bowl long snapper. No, you, you think quarterback, you think running back. So... Tell me first, how did you get your passion? First of all, ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get your passion to be a long snapper? My passion to be a long snapper. um, Nobody aspires to that, right? (laughs) Um, So I I played. I don't think they even know what a long. How many don't know what a long snapper is? Oh, wow. All right. You want to come catch a snap? (laughs) So a long snapper is the guy who throws the football between his legs on punts and field goals, either to the punter or to the holder who puts the ball down for the kicker to kick it through the goalposts. So I'm that guy. And if you don't know what that is, that means that you have a good long snapper. Because you only know who your long snapper is if he does bad. That's right. So uh, does anybody remember Clint doing a bad snap on the Seahawks? No. Y'all are being Cause, nice, because I do. This <laughs> is such an amazing long snapper. Okay, so how did you get your passion? Because you could have been a quarterback, maybe, yeah. a running back. What made you choose long snapping? Mostly my lack of athleticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys feel me on that. Um, so I, I actually played quarterback in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. And two of those years, I broke my ankle doing the same play, going the same direction. And so I thought, maybe it's time to pivot um, <laughs> into something else. And so uh, I figured if I can throw the ball overhand, I could probably throw the ball between my legs. And my dad, who played football at the University of Texas, um, he played with a guy named Earl Campbell, if some of you guys know who that is. Anybody under 40 probably doesn't. That's okay. We're in the house of the Lord. (laughs) Um, So my dad played football at the University of Texas, and he had a relationship with some of the coaches there, and they recommended for me to learn how to long snap. And so we ordered a VHS tape. And come on. That's right. I miss it. I actually do. So I taught myself how to do it in the backyard, and um, I found that my times were, were just as good as the guys that were in the NFL, and I became absolutely obsessed with it. 
Um, I know, it's like the most random obsession in the world. Uh, but I became obsessed with it, and that was, that was what I wanted to do. Even, initially, I was just trying to beef up my resume. I never thought that that would be the thing that actually took me to where I, I, I got. You shared a story in the first service about that kind of passion that most high school kids don't have. So can you share that? Yeah. So um, when I was in high school, one of my best friends, his dad owned one of the largest oil companies in the world. So Homeboy had some deep, deep pockets. Yeah. And, um, I told him he needs to look him up and uh, uh, tell him to start coming here and tithing. But. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, my buddy came up to me over the summer before my senior year, and he was like, hey, would you want to go with me and my family on my family's 173-foot yacht that's four stories, that has four jet skis that we lower down from the top with a crane, and has a 15-person staff of, like, world star chefs? And I'm like, maybe, you know? Yeah, that sounds like it could be fun. And so I was 17 years old, and this is, you know, a year after I learned how to long snap, and I had already started getting offers uh, to come and walk on. And every single day, well, first of all, for the two weeks that I was there, like, pretty much all I ate was chicken and broccoli. And it's like, they had the most ridiculous desserts that you could imagine. Like, everybody else that was there put on, like, 20 pounds, and I was just like, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm obsessed with. But every single day, I would take a kayak, and I would kayak to shore with a football and a friend of mine, and I would snap for an hour. And then I'd kayak back to the boat and, and do it every day. And so even in paradise, I'm like, this is, this is what I'm passionate about, and this is what I want to be great at. That's amazing. So <clears throat> with that in mind, when did you find yourself after high school? How did you get into college today? Did you get a scholarship for long snapping in college? So I started my career at the University of Oklahoma, and um, that was ended up not being a great situation for me. I started to learn just the politics of uh, collegiate and, and even in the NFL. Um, and so I ended up transferring to Texas Christian University. I had to sit out for a season, and after a year, I ended up earning a scholarship and uh, was on scholarship for three years there. Wow. Yeah. So you became very good at what you do. Did you see yourself getting drafted into the NFL as a long snapper? I was actually told I was going to be drafted. And here's a fun story. Uh, so when I, was, when I was in high school, uh, I grew up in South Texas. And um, the closest NFL team was the Houston Texans. So my dream was to play for the Houston Texans. It's nobody's dream. It's, I know that. I know that. I realize that. Like I said, jumbo shrimp. Um, <laughs> but it's my dream. And so I wanted to play for the Texans so bad. I was, you know, it was close to my hometown. My high school mascot was actually the Texan, um, which because in Texas we're a little narcissistic like that. Doesn't exactly work for like Rhode Island. <laughs> Rhode Island, Rhode Islanders, go get them, guys. And so I was the only long snapper who was invited to the NFL scouting combine, and the team that was most interested in me was the Houston Texans, and they told me that they were going to be drafting me in the fifth round. And so I remember I'm sitting on the couch on, on draft day. My whole family's there, 
and uh, we're watching the screen, and Mel Kuyper, who's the draft expert, he's been following the draft for like 30-something years, he says, the best pick available is Clint Gresham, the long snapper from Texas Christian University. And then the worst picture that I've ever taken in my life gets put up on the screen. And I wanted to throw up because what they did was they took my picture from my sophomore year at TCU when uh, sort of like as a rite of passage, whenever you go to training camp your, your first year at TCU, they shave your head and your eyebrows. And so it literally looked like Goodnight Moon. It's just like this giant white circle. And like, it was, oh, it's humiliating. And so once the moon set, um, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I, I glance down at the bottom of the screen. It says the Houston Texans are on the clock. They're getting ready to turn in their draft pick. It's the fifth round. My phone starts ringing, and it's a Houston area code. And my heart starts pumping. And I start thinking to myself, like, okay, Jesus, I told you what I wanted. I said, I want to play for the Texans. And God always does what we want, doesn't he? <laughs> and I pick up the phone very eagerly. And it's this gruff, grizzly special teams coach on the other line. And he's like, hey, Glenn, uh, this coach here, just calling to let you know. This is actually how he talked. This is how he talked. I'm not exaggerating. Just calling to let you know that uh, we are, in fact, not going to be drafting you. Yeah, we, uh, we changed our mind. We want you to be a free agent and uh, sign. We're not going to be drafting you. And I remember sitting. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking, you could have just not called. That would have perfectly communicated the fact that you didn't want to draft me. Like, thanks for getting my hopes up. And so um, the fifth round ends, the sixth round ends, seventh round ends, and now I'm a free agent, and now I have to essentially figure out the team that I have the best chance of making. I ended up getting offers from a total of five teams, the Texans, the Dolphins, the Ravens, the Saints, and the Chiefs. And I remember sitting there trying to discern what to do and um, everything in the natural pointed to going to Houston. That was my dream. They were going to be giving me the equivalent of a seventh-round signing bonus. Everything made sense for me to go there. And there was something that just didn't sit right in, in my spirit about it. And how many of you know that the Holy Spirit wants to talk to you? He does. But we have to, like, put our phones away and stuff, which is kind of inconvenient sometimes. I realize that. But if you'll do it, you get to talk to the creator of everything which is kind of cool. You can get some insight this way. If you feel like your life is falling apart, maybe turn your phone off. Maybe go do a fast or something. I don't know. So um, I get on the phone with a mentor of mine. He's actually the guy that I dedicated my book to, just a spiritual father of mine, a guy who was, there was nothing special about him other than he was available whenever I called, which is powerful because the best ability is availability. You really just have to be available. And you just really have to just be willing to say yes. And God can do miraculous, crazy things in your life if you'll just say yes. So uh, we're on the phone. We're talking. And I'm thinking I'm supposed to go to, um, to Houston. And as we're praying, I have this statement pop into my mind. And the statement was, who's the only team in the nation whose name speaks of my glory? And I thought about it. And I thought... I know it's not the Patriots. <laughs> that I know for sure. We're going to get to that, aren't we? We are. 
Let's not talk about it. That's too painful. That was like eight years ago, and I'm still so sad about it. Run the ball. Anyways. <laughs> Who's the only team in the nation whose name speaks of my glory? And I thought, the saints. And I realized that's a very convenient play on words, but God has done weirder stuff in the Bible. And the people who were obedient to do whatever God said to do ended up getting blessed. So I called up this coach for the Texans, and I said, Coach, God spoke. And he, he wasn't impressed. <laughs> I don't know. I was, I was seriously hoping for kind of like this attaboy, like, way to go, man. You heard from God. And he did not think that was cool. And so I turned down a guarantee to go step out in faith with the Saints. And three months into camp, um, I got cut. And um, I walked into Sean Payton's office, the head coach for the Saints, and he had like this fake, sad look on his face, like he hasn't fired a thousand people. And he's like, hey, Clint, I'm sorry, you know, we want to bring you back, but we don't have enough room on our roster. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Not really. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) God told me to be here. And then I was escorted off the property. (laughs) And so um, 24 hours later, I got a call from the Seahawks. And they say, hey, we've got a flight for you tonight in first class. Come on, somebody. Yeah. And um, ended up being there for six years. I couldn't believe it. Six years longer than I expected to. And one of my favorite parts about that story uh, that I didn't mention in the last service Um, Well, two things. First of all, it was my dream to play for Pete Carroll since I was like 15 years old. Even when Pete Carroll fired me, I was like, gosh, I still like you. (laughs) You've like so marked me as a man. And second of all, I don't know if you guys remember the 2010 football season, but it was the first time in NFL history that a team had won their division with a losing record. Seven and nine never looked so good, you guys. It's true. And the team that we beat in the first round of the divisional playoffs just so happened to be the defending Super Bowl champions, the New Orleans Saints, the team that cut your boy. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Okay, so now moving on a little bit. Yeah, kind of ranting there. Sorry. It's good. It's good. So (laughs) you, you got cut from the Saints. You get on the Seahawks for six years. Did you envision yourself going to the Super Bowl? No. Or more, two Super Bowls. No, I had, I, yeah, no, I didn't. Um, I, I mean, I dreamed of it, like, in the same sense that every high school athlete dreams of, yeah, like, I want to play uh, in the NFL. And, I mean, I was, like I said earlier, I was obsessed with it, but I, I never imagined that I would actually get there. And even getting there, I remember the Super Bowl parade, like, going through downtown Seattle, and there's, like, 1.2 million people there, and just thinking, like, this is so bizarre. Not a single fight at that event. That's right. Come on. That's what we need for all these problems in the world, just the Seahawks to win more Super Bowls. COVID. That's another story. Okay. So so you're you're there. You're being honored. And do you remember the team you beat in 2013? I do. Because there's two people right here that I see that. I was happy that Peyton Manning went out with a win. But, man, we made him look normal that day. So speaking of, we beat the Broncos, and we won that game really because of the snapper. 
Yeah, yeah, the center, yeah. very first play of the game. Yeah, yeah, hiked it over his head, it was, and we were so thrilled. And I bet you were thinking, sure glad I'm not that guy. That is exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it was painful to watch. I, I felt for the guy. Well, not for me, because my kids, they live in Denver, and I loved rubbing it in their faces. <laughs> anyway. So the next year, we go to the Super Bowl again. We're playing the Patriots. The name that shall not be mentioned. <laughs> We're down on the two-yard line. One-yard line. One-yard line. One minute left or something like that. Two timeouts left. I'm in, uh, I, I went to the Super Bowl. A guy promised me he was buying me tickets. I won't say his name, but he was buying me tickets. And his father. Tickets were promised. We're there outside the Super Bowl. The guy never shows up with the tickets because we found out that he could, he could get 10000 or 20000 per ticket, so he never showed up with our tickets. So we end up in a sports bar, and we're so excited. You can, uh, it's full of Seahawks. Everybody's cheering. We have got the game wrapped up. And then all of a sudden, and the Patriot fans that were in there were very quiet <laughs> until oh. there's this play called that we're all shocked by because we have the best running back carrying four people at a time, four yards, and it's like, okay, this is a for sure thing. Let's just score the touchdown, be done with it. But we threw a pass. <laughs> so my You question, say it like I'm the one that threw it. <laughs> <laughs> so my question, does anybody remember the Super Bowl? Yes. Does anybody remember an interception? So our question is, who called that play? It wasn't me, okay? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Coach Carroll is a class act, and he's going to be the one that is going to take the fall for that. Yeah. I don't know who made the call. I would imagine our offensive coordinator did. Um, this doesn't help, but one thing that people forget a lot is that we were actually in the same situation right before halftime where – you have to throw the ball at least once to stop the clock so you don't have to use a timeout. And statistically, it's the right thing to do. But it was a bad pass. Yeah. He threw it out and away. If he would have thrown it low, low and inside, it would have been, uh, we would have been a dynasty. So it's Russell Wilson's fault. Let's blame it on him. Yeah. Sure. He's, he's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually talked to Russ probably, probably like two years after that. It was just like, dude, how did you get over that? And it, he, like, looked at me. He was like, well, you know, first of all, go Hawks. And second of all, I mean, <laughs> you know, you just got to move on. And I'm like, it's been, like, nine years, and I'm still sad about it. And he's just, but man, like, I'll say about Russ, like, he is the most disciplined guy when it comes to how he speaks. Like, when we think about the verse that talks about death and life or in the power of the tongue, that dude is disciplined with how he speaks He's disciplined with how he interacts with people. He's the hardest working guy I've ever been around. Yeah. Um, and they're still saying that today, even in Denver. He's the first guy there and the last one to yeah, leave. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, now, with that in mind, the last attribute of a champion is confidence that we wrote down. And you have had changes in your life where a lot of times we put our confidence in uh, our roles in life and what we do. And here you were a Seahawk for six years. And everybody loved you. People wanted you in to speak, bring your book, sign autographs. I, I mean, today you're going to do that and 
sign people's foreheads if they want to. I signed a forehead today. Yeah, I saw that. So (laughs) my question to you is, now that it's been six years or so since you've been out, what has your life been like, and how is your confidence? Yeah. I'll let you take it over. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Can we give it up for Pastor Doug? (laughs) Well, um... It is an honor to be back in this church. The last time I was here was a long time ago. And uh, before I get started, um, so I wanted to show a picture of my family, my sweet family. I got my wife, Maddie, my daughter, Zoe, and son, West, and they're my world. They're two and four, and they're driving us crazy because that's what two and four-year-olds do, and that's okay. It is the great sanctifier. <laughs> Uh, and it's been great. Um, and then also, uh, so in 2017, I wrote a book called Becoming. The reason I chose that word is because the word becoming is an adjective and it's a verb. We are all becoming something, but to be becoming is to be attractive. And so what does it look like to like who you are when you haven't become the person you feel like you're supposed to be? Sort of this aspirational pursuit of focusing on the process because we really have little control over the outcomes in our life. And anytime we try to focus on the outcomes in our lives, all it's going to do is going to lead to anxiety and depression and drive you crazy. I used to stress out all the time playing in Seattle because it rains a lot here. And let me tell you, when it's rainy and you're trying to throw a football between your legs or the one bad snap that I did have, I appreciate you not bringing it up, but I'll bring it up since I'm the one who did it. Uh, My last season, we were playing against um, the Minnesota Vikings. It was the third coldest game in NFL history. Do you guys remember this? Yeah. I got my punter's nose broken because of this. <laughs> what a joker. He should have ran the other way. It's his fault. <laughs> yeah, I reached down to grab this football, and it's minus 26 degrees with the wind chill. I lit, it feels like an ice cube, and I snapped it as hard as I could, and it just sort of bloop. And um, thankfully, Blair Walsh mixed, missed a kick and bailed me out. But can't control the weather. So anytime you focus on things you can't control, all it's going to do is lead to anxiety. So that's what my book is about. Another funny thing is that in 2018, some no-name author named Michelle Obama wrote a book called Becoming, totally ripped off my book title. Unbelievable. I used to be the first thing that came up on Amazon, and now I'm like not even on there. I am on there. But um, my wife, who's a pro at Photoshop, she, she put this together. I thought you guys would like this. May that forever be burned into your brain. (laughs) Isn't that so gross? (laughs) Okay, get it out of here. It's awful. So I've got my book outside. Um, I also have something called iTalk. They're biblically-based affirmations to train the way that we think. Um, And then I got one other thing. I've got these these wristbands um, that has to do with confidence. Um, When it comes to confidence, I feel like confidence is overrated. And the reason that I feel like confidence is overrated because anytime that we put our confidence in anything other than God, it's ultimately not going to satisfy us. And when it comes to confidence, the reason I think it's overrated is because bravery is far more important. So this wristband that I have, it's got all these bison on it, all these bison facing in different directions. And how many of you guys know that there is a difference between a bison and a cow? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, duh, yeah, obviously. (laughs) 
Well, there's more to it than that. So if you have a bison and a cow in the same pasture and a storm starts to roll in and there's thunder and there's lightning and shark tornadoes and all kinds of crazy stuff, a cow will look at that and go, ah, and then run the other way. (laughs) Maybe they won't say that, but in their head, right? They'll try to run away from it. But the problem is that because they're going the same direction as the storm, they just keep staying in the storm. How many of you have some problems that you feel like haven't left you? (gasps) A bison, on the other hand, looks at the storm and heads towards it. And by heading towards it, you spend less time in it. Because who you really want to be is on the other side of the thing that you least want to address. That's who we want to be. And so I made these wristbands to remind myself that no matter where a storm comes in my life, I want to have the courage. Oh, he got it. Nice hands. Wherever a storm comes in my life, I want to have the courage to face it. Because that's the only way that our sense of confidence and esteem grows. Like confidence is great, but bravery is far better. And bravery is a decision. It's not an emotion. And when I think about my life post-football, it has not been rosy, you guys. I know it looks like it. If you look at my social media, I mean, social media is like such a farce. Right? Like, in... You know, people talk about how, like, you know, you're comparing people's highlight reels to, you know, the rest of your life. But, you know, people do it innocently. It's not like, you know, people are trying to make you think, this is who I am. Because I feel like, you know, whenever something good happens, we want to share it with people. And so that's usually what ends up getting posted to social media. And so um, it started in 2016. I remember I was in the middle of a golf lesson because I'm terrible at golf. And I looked down at my phone and it says, is ringing, and it says John Schneider on it. It's not good. It's not good, because it was March, and I had two more years left on my contract, and there's no reason that John Schneider, the general manager for the Seattle Seahawks, should be calling me in March. So I let it go to voicemail. That's right. (laughs) If we're going to do this, John, it's on my terms. And so I called him back, and he let me know that, hey, Clint, thanks for everything. We're going to be going a different direction. And I got fired. And it totally caught me off guard. I didn't see it coming. And, you know, the last time that I was here, I remember talking about identity. And here's the thing about identity. that It is inevitable that whatever it is that gives you the greatest sense of significance it could, it could literally be anything. I'm the president of a bank, or I have people who listen to me, or, you know, whatever. Whatever makes you feel significant, it's inevitable that some of your sense of worth is going to be put into that. But the problem is that any time that we put our sense of worth into something that can be taken away from us, our life is going to be fragile, and our ego is going to be fragile. And it is not going to take much to throw us. And honestly, I feel fortunate Because I was forced to have my identity crisis 30 years before my peers. 
I mean, a lot of my friends that I went to college with, you know, they're, you know, in the middle of their career and they still have the, the carrot that they're chasing. And I was fortunate enough to actually get it and be like, this isn't doing it. This isn't satisfying me the way that I thought it would. But the mix of getting released, my wife and I, we had moved back to Texas where um, all of our family lived. Uh, we wanted to have free babysitting whenever we started having kids, which that was smart. That part we did right. But we felt isolated down there, and it's like Texas, Texas is great in a lot of ways, but you got really big mosquitoes. And there's a lot of things about it that are, Texas summers are just not a whole lot of fun. It's a depressing place in the summertime in Texas. And so that, I, I was already starting to really, really struggle. And in, how many of you guys saw the movie Concussion with Will Smith? Yeah. Yeah, so it's about you know, the doctor that discovered something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It took me like two weeks to learn how to say that. <laughs> CTE, for short, is what happens in a person's brain whenever there's been repeated head trauma. And um, the symptoms of that, well, first of all, you can't tell if you have it until you're dead. So that's a problem. Um, <laughs> but the symptoms of it are addiction, depression, anxiety, insomnia, irritability, rage. I mean, go back and watch that movie. It's, it's pretty sobering. And I started to notice some cognitive stuff that um, seemed to come out of the blue. And I started to realize, like, I started to notice that, like, I'm not sleeping well. And I feel irritable. And I feel down. And I don't really know why. And then COVID hit. And, like, who wasn't depressed in 2020? Like, oh, my gosh. Are we all okay from that? I feel like everybody's got PTSD from those years because it was nuts. And I was in Texas that was, like, a little bit more free than a lot of parts in the world. And so, like, the isolation and, and all of this stuff kind of collided. And how many of you guys know that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety? It's connection. That's real. And so um, when I was in college, when I was building my testimony, um, <laughs> I was in a fraternity. And so you can imagine what that meant. And um, I historically in my life struggled with alcohol. Um, it was the thing that kind of made me feel okay in my own skin, which is powerful if you hate yourself. And honestly... Um, Part of the reason that I gravitated towards sports is because sports made me feel like I mattered. I got my, uh, moved up to varsity as a sophomore, which in Texas is like the highest status symbol you can possibly get. And I got my Letterman jacket the following April, and it's like 100 degrees, 2,000% humidity, and I wore that jacket every day, just pouring sweat, just begging someone to be like, look at me, check me out, like I matter. So I found myself in this place after COVID hit of, um, of relapsing, which this is actually the first time that I've talked about this. And I found myself in the absolute darkest pit that I could have possibly imagined, looking for reasons to live. And the funny thing about addiction and depression and all of that stuff is that it's such a liar. 
And so I've been sober for six months now, and um, yeah, it's a miracle. It really is. Because 2021 was the worst year of my life um, by my own doing, by my own choices. Uh, I ended up going to treatment for five weeks, and it was absolutely gut-wrenching. And the picture that I have in my mind of, it's like this picture of Jesus, and he's got a sword, and he's got it right against my chest. And he's holding the sword against my chest, and then he looks me in the eye, and he says, okay, come a little closer now. And I have to just like lean into this blade where he goes into the deep, dark parts of our heart that we don't want to talk about. This is the storm that I'm talking about. This is the heart of a champion. The heart of a champion has the courage to be seen, has the courage to bring things out into the light. And what I didn't realize, what I didn't realize in the the year and a half of my relapse was how quickly I forgot about the things that God had done in my life. You know, the number one thing that God said to do was to remember to not forget about the things that he's done because that's the great spiritual chiropractic adjustment. It brings us back into reality that God is for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And so I forgot. And it took going to treatment and sitting in on these like deep, dark parts of who I am and walking in recovery. I, I absolutely love that you guys have Celebrate Recovery here. And if you haven't gone, you need to go to Celebrate Recovery. Even if you're not like an active addiction. Because the thing about it is that everything in our world is designed to get you to think that that's going to make you happy. And that's the whole point of Celebrate Recovery. That's the whole point of recovery is to untether ourselves from all these things that tell us you're going to matter, that you're important, that you're safe, that you're loved. All of those things that are such counterfeits come in and they try to rob us. I really believe that things like Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever recovery meeting that you're going to, that that's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means. Like, it's not about going in and just raising your hand and being like, okay, yeah, Jesus, okay, great, thank you, okay, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want. Like, sanctification is leading in, leaning into this stuff and allowing God to root this stuff out of my heart. And so I had told the story the last time that I was here, and I wanted to share it again because it was something that became a reality to me when I was in treatment and afraid that I'm going to lose my family Oh, man. I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) God bless you, man. Thank you. So um, when I was seven years old, my best friend, his name was Weston. And Weston and I did everything together. He was part of my family. I was part of his family. And Weston, he... uh, he had a big plot of land outside of town, and they had a golf cart. And when you're seven years old and you're in a golf cart, it's like NASCAR, all right? We're flying down this Caliche Road at six miles an hour. I mean, it is just unbelievable. We had so much fun on this golf cart. And I remember my mom walked in one day, and I was watching TV, and her eyes were, like, swollen shut. And I could tell that she'd been crying. And she looked at me, and she said, Clinty. 
Weston fell off the back of the golf cart and he hit his head and she's like bursts into tears and she tells me that Weston, um, Weston passed away. And so um, I remember sitting there and this was my first experience with death and I'd also like to invite the band to come back up. You guys are welcome to come now. Um, this was my first experience with death and a year later, um, my parents got divorced, and then after that, it was basically 20 years of doing everything that I possibly could to try to fill this hole of grief. Oh, I've told this story a thousand times, and I've never not cried. For 20 years, looking for something to like fill this thing in me, looking for something to just like make me feel okay with myself, feel okay with the loss that I'd had. And back in 2013, I was speaking at a friend of mine's church down in my hometown in Corpus Christi. And every time I would go back to my hometown, I would always get really nostalgic. And I would think a lot about like, what would have happened if Weston hadn't passed away? Like, would my family still be together? And so I went over to the cemetery on a Thursday, and I remember he was buried along this road, and I parked my truck up at the top of this road, and I was looking around for 20 minutes, and I couldn't find his grave. And so I went into the office, and I asked the people in the office, can you tell me where Weston Conley is buried? And she came back a few minutes later, and she said, we don't have a record of him being buried here. And I knew that was wrong. And so I left, and I came back a few days later, and I realized that she had actually misspelled his name. So I gave her the correct spelling of the name. She comes back right away, hands me a map, and says, this is where Weston Conley is buried. Oh. I take this map, and I go, and I'm looking around for 10, 15 minutes, and I still can't find it. And while this is happening, I see a couple walk up, and they're like having a moment over at this grave and I had already been over there and I could see the woman's shoulders shaking like they were she was crying and I'm giving them some space and after about 10 minutes they walk back to their car they get in their car and they drive away and my heart starts beating and I just have this like weird feeling and I run over to where they were standing And I looked down, and it says Weston Conley. And that was Weston's parents. And they just left. And I hadn't seen them in 20 years, since I was seven years old. And so I freaked out. Like, oh, my God, where'd you go? So I, like, run as fast as I can. I get in my truck, and I pull out onto this road. I have no idea which direction they went. They, I could either go left or right, and so I guessed. Flip of the coin. I take a right. I start speeding down the road at 80 miles an hour, hoping that I catch up to them. And miraculously, I see their taillights in the distance at a stoplight. And I pull up next to them. And I'm thinking like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> it's kind of like this awkward moment. And then the light turns green. We're going 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour. So finally, I just roll down the window, 
and I start honking and I shout out the window and the father looks at me and I scream out the window, are you Weston Conley's parents? Which is probably the first time they've been asked that in a very long time. And he looks at me proudly and he says, yes, we are. And I say, I'm Clint Gresham. Oh. And the mom like leans forward and shrieks at the top of her lungs, glad, just screaming. We're going 50 miles an hour, everybody. It's not safe, but we're having a moment with God here. And so we pull over on the side of the road and we jump out and like cars are flying by and we're hugging each other and she's squeezing me as tight as she can and she says, I feel like I'm holding my son again. In that moment, like, broke something in my heart. And there's people out here who you feel like God's forgotten you. You are not forgotten. Having confidence, having the heart of a champion is remembering that even in the deepest, darkest parts of your soul, in the dark night of the soul, that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Who he said that he is, is for you. And he will never, ever, ever leave you. And I had forgotten. And the last story that I want to share with you about what it means to be a champion. I went through hell these last few years. And like I said, this is the first time I've talked about it. I can't even tell you One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Mark chapter 3, and it's the story of this guy who's got a withered hand. He essentially has a disability, and they're at the temple, and everybody is watching Jesus to see whether or not Jesus was going to heal him on the Sabbath. So you got to imagine, like for this guy, there's a good chance he's probably feeling a little bit insecure. He's got this disability and everybody in the room is talking about him. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he looks at him and he says, stretch out your hand. Now, if I'm that guy, I'm thinking, wow, that's super offensive, Jesus. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't know what that looked like. But I know Jesus was asking him to do something that he couldn't do. He was asking him to do something that probably was a little embarrassing, like showing the thing that he felt the most embarrassed about to somebody else. Let me tell you something. All of us have a withered hand. All of us have something that if you knew this about me, you would reject me. And so I would rather put on this mask and just smile and grit my teeth until I die then live a life that's truly fulfilling with authentic relationships. 
The only way that you're going to experience heaven on earth, which I believe with all my heart that God has called us to experience, is that if you have the courage to take your withered hand and show up to celebrate recovery, because that's what it means to be a believer, and show that to other people, because the connection that comes from that will set you free. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us here. That's what it means to have the heart of a champion. To lean into the pain, lean into the discomfort. Because you will be reborn. And God will give you a story that you could have never imagined. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you will never forget us that you have never left us, you have never forsaken us, and even if it's been decades since those pains that we've experienced in our life, you have not forgotten, and that you are using all things for our good to do something miraculous in our life. And just with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would just ask if... Hmm. If you feel like... God is stirring your heart and you want to either give your life to Christ or recommit your life to Christ or if you're just I'm in pain Clint and I feel forgotten I just ask that you just raise up your hand you can raise it and put it right back down thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you well Jesus you see every single person here and you see the hands that aren't raised And Lord, I ask that you would come and do a work in our hearts. We trust you, God. And we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can be more like you. And we ask for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We ask for the strength of vulnerability to reach out and have authentic connection, which is the opposite of addiction. Because we know, God, that you have built us for more. And we give you all the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been blessed today, haven't we? Let's stand. Just want to take a moment, even though it's we're a couple minutes later than normal, but we're gonna sing a song. If I can have prayer people come on up here. If you need prayer today for anything, we're a church that believes in prayer. So if you need prayer for your marriage finances, for healing, uh, for addictions, whatever it might be. In the first service, I had a successful businessman come up to me. Hadn't been in church in years. And he got sick earlier this year and fell into alcoholism. And this service, the first service, he got healed, saved, delivered. Another couple came, just lost their mother a couple days ago their wife, and came and God healed them just from hurts and depression. So I'm telling you, God's here today. Let's worship him. If you need prayer, come on up. If you gave your life to Christ, let somebody know. Let's worship.